we get to have uh, one of those family moments this morning. Listen as I read from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. These were actually the first verses that we taught our children something to be said for strategic scripture memorization. The Israelites in Judges would have done well to take to heart this command that Paul is referencing from the Mosaic Law. Children are to honor and obey parents as they would the Lord because he is because they are his delegated authority which is a lofty call and a sobering responsibility for us as parents. Paul continues in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul is essentially reminding his readers of what Moses instructed 1,500 years earlier in Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7, when he said, These commandments that I give to you today... They are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Children are a gift from the Lord. But parenting is a weighty responsibility and a full-time job. So I want to invite the Stixmas to join me up on stage as they dedicate Joran to the Lord this morning. Justin and Melanie are here because they realize they have an important task before them. They are seeking God's help and they're asking for our help as well. They realize that this is a blessed, holy, and challenging privilege to walk out a life as Christian parents. So I'm going to invite them to introduce themselves and Joran and anything you want to say about what we're doing this morning. And then uh, I'm going to take an opportunity just to pray for each of you and for Joran and this task that's before us. Uh, I'm Justin, and this is my wife, Melanie, and Joran. Um, so when Joran was first born, we lived in New Brunswick, Canada, and um, it snows a lot there. And so in the winter, um, when he was a baby, they basically closed church most weeks. Um, and then the COVID happened. So that's why we're up here when Joran is three. Um, but we're very thankful to be here with you guys doing this um, and having my parents and Justin's parents both here from the West Coast, which is amazing. So, um, but um, Joran... Uh, we named him Joran because um, Justin um, comes from a Dutch heritage. It's a Dutch name that means earth worker. And we had decided that we wanted to start a farm. And so we wanted Joran to 
be someone who would love working with God's creation, um, with the earth, with animals, and treat them well. And so that's where his name comes from. Um, and his middle names, Patrick and Paul, um, are both men that um, love the Lord and really worked to um, help other people love the Lord more. So Patrick um, is Pat Sabell, if any of you know him. He writes some of the songs that we sing. Um, but he was our pastor um, in Canada 17 years for me and had a huge impact on me um, coming to know the Word of God and love people. Um, and then the Apostle Paul, of course, um, the way that God used him to write so many books of the Bible that have helped us to understand God and the gospel more. And so that's what our hope is for Joran, that he will um, grow up to be a man that loves the Lord and helps other people to know the Lord more as well. Um, yeah. Well, would you join with me as we pray for each of them? I'll stand by. Lord, we ask that just as we've heard a little bit more about Joran and what Justin and Melanie have a desire to see him develop into, Lord, we join with them in that desire and ask that you would work in his life, even from a young age, to bring him to a knowledge of you and the love for you that lasts all his days. Lord, we pray that you would allow him to be a testimony in his generation, that he would be a man after your own heart, that desires to serve you and tell others of you. May your spirit rest upon him in a wonderful way that is attractive to those around him and would bring many to a knowledge of your great grace and love. Lord, I pray for Justin and Melanie as they seek to be his primary disciples in the years to come. Would you fill them with your spirit to serve and love, to be patient with, to be kind to, but also to correct and rebuke where needed, to set his direction, and most of all, point him to you. Lord, would you give them wisdom? Would you fill their home with a love that is undeniable for each of their children, that they might see you in your greatness and love you all their days? Lord, we thank you for their commitment to you and their desire to raise Joran uh, for you. Would you bless this work that they do? In your great name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and down and thank you for... I love uh, the Stixma family. They are seeking to raise their kids up in the fear and admonition of the Lord to know him. And I also love that he was saying, I want to get down the whole time because that reveals just our human nature, right? Nobody has to teach us that. Nobody has to teach us to want our own way. Um, by default, we want to go our own way. And, and I love why we do this. We dedicate our children because we're committing to not give in to kids wanting their own way and living in their own eyes the way they think they should go. We're committing to, as parents and as a community, saying we want to help raise kids up in the way that you go. We want to help raise kids up to, to know and go God's way, not their own way. And that really goes with the theme of judges, that, that people did what was right in their own eyes. 
and that we are actually inclined to do what's right in our own eyes. That's what we inherently want, to do what's right in our own eyes. And yet God gave us the book of Judges as well to teach us that, that it doesn't go well when we do what's right in our own eyes, but we need to conform our lives to him. So let's read Judges 11. We're going to be reading a long passage of scripture. I'm actually going to be going through two chapters, but Judges 11 and towards the end I'll read Judges 12. We're going to read Judges 11 now, and we're going to see here really who we can trust in. So let's read this passage together. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Jephthah's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight with the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, this is why we've turned to you now, that you may fight with us and fight with the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land, and from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restored it peaceably. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Israel, from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness of the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom wouldn't listen. And so they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent, so Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of Aram. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your country, your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people, Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Did he ever go to war with them? Well, Israel lived in Heshbon and his villages, and Aroer and his villages, and all the cities that are on the banks of Arnon 300 years. Why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. 
And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah and Gilead. And from Mizpah to Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I'll offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as abel Keramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter. You brought me very low, and you become the cause of great trouble to me. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now the Lord has avenged me, you on your enemies, on the Amorites. So he said to her, Father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. It became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileite four days in the year. Let's pray. Father, sometimes your word troubles us. And God, it's in those moments that you confront us, you confront what we believe, you confront who we are, Lord. You make us wrestle with hard things. God, I pray that today as we, as we confront this passage, as this passage really is your word confronts us, that it would, it would confront what we are trusting and who we are trusting and who we're looking to, Lord. It confronts our realities, how we look at ourselves, Lord. It would confront how we live our lives. God, I pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit, that you would in, Enable each and every one of us to hear from you. And she have been able to me to preach your words. Lord, would you do this by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to admit something. When I was studying this passage, I didn't like it very much at first. And, and I, you might not have liked it just now as you were hearing it being read. It's a difficult passage. It, it has some things in it that are, that are not great. It has a, has a bad background for a guy that it seems to condemn him because he is the son of a prostitute. For his past, he seems to be condemned. He's cast out. He's mistreated. Then, then you think, well, he's responding well and things go really great. And then you see that he makes a ridiculous vow. And then, and then his daughter, his only daughter comes out and then he sacrifices her. And you think, what in the world is going on? And this passage, is, it, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, Right? And, and sometimes scripture is uncomfortable. Sometimes scripture is confusing and it, and it seems distressing. And I think this passage is actually meant to distress us. It's meant to make us see some things that are just not right. You ever have that experience as you're reading through scripture, especially through Judges, right? Anybody have the experience of reading through Judges? It can be distressing. Um, I'm the only one. Anyone else have distressing thoughts as you go through Judges? It's distressing. It's gross and disgusting at times. Sometimes when we come to passages like this, we have to admit Scripture sometimes is difficult. God doesn't candy coat things. He doesn't paint a, a rosy picture of everything in our lives where, where everything ends up like a fairy tale and everything works out well in the end. They live happily ever after, right? Sometimes things are difficult. Sometimes Scripture messes with our heads. 
I think this passage is meant to do that. It makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't sit well. It doesn't make us feel great. We think, what in the world is going on? It, makes us, it forces us to confront some things, some hard realities, and to ponder, what's the point of this? What's the application of this? And it makes us deal with unvarnished truth. And that's what we have here. We have some really shocking, unvarnished truth in this passage. Now, the bad things are not condoned, but we're left to kind of sit with it, to think about it, to wonder, like, what in the world is this here for? Sometimes passages like this confront us, really. They make us uncomfortable, and I think they're meant to. Sometimes God makes us uncomfortable so that it confronts what we believe, what we're, what we're trusting with. It's meant to make us question things. And I think this passage is really meant, these two chapters are meant to confront us and to help us confront who we're trusting in for our past, because we see Jephthah's past. We're, we're meant to see who we're trusting in for the present, who we're trusting in for the future as well. It's meant to, con- to confront us and, and to force us to really to answer some basic, some fundamental questions. And in this passage, we're going to see both God's sovereignty all throughout the passage, but we're also going to see man's responsibility too. And they go hand in hand. And, and I think this is meant for us to make, uh, see that who are we trusting in? And the first question we have to confront at the beginning of our passage that we see is that who are we trusting in for our past? Because we see that God uses a guy with a messed up past, Right? And so I think we're meant to, readers meant to see that and say, whoa, what, what about our pasts? How do we deal with our pasts? How does our past define us? What, who are we trusting in for our past? Right before this chapter, there was some foreshadowing about what was to come. The, the people of Gilead, they were, they were concerned. The Amorites were beginning to amass. They were saying, who would be a leader over us? No one steps forward. But then we see they dismiss the most likely character to begin with, right? At the beginning of this passage, it says, Jephthah was a mighty warrior, he was a valiant fighter. He was known, he was renowned for his fighting ability. And they asked earlier, who, who will fight for us? But then they dismiss him. And then you see why they dismissed him. At first you think, oh, this, this guy, he's a mighty warrior. Maybe he's the guy. But then the very next line, the author says something that's a little shocking. He says, but, but, as if this disqualifies him, but he was the son of a prostitute. It couldn't be him. Right? It couldn't be someone with a, a sullied past. It, it couldn't be somebody who came from a bad family, a bad background, who was a product of sinful relationships. And so they dismiss him. And the reader thinks, well, maybe he's disqualified. Because this is not the kind of resume that you would expect for a hero of the faith. Surely the son of a harlot can't be their leader and the leader of the whole tribe. And then we look and see that he had other brothers and sisters. It says that he had other sons. And then, but the other sons, they were jealous of him. He, he, was, he was to claim that inheritance as the son of Gilead. Because really inheritance went through the sons. So it didn't matter who his mom was anyway. But, but his brothers, they didn't like that. They were jealous. There was some infighting. They had a terrible family life here, obviously. And they were like, you're not going to receive any of the inheritance. We're going to kick you out. And they drove him off, and he was an outcast. And you think, well, this, this is not the guy, right? Because surely someone who doesn't come from a bad parentage and a broken home who's an outcast, surely they couldn't be used by God. You ever, you ever feel that way about other people sometimes? Like, oh, my goodness, they're, they're such a mess. There's no way God can use them. Now, you would never say that out loud because you know better, right? You ever feel that way about yourself? You, you come from a, a sullied past. 
You come from a broken home. You come from a messed up family, messed up relationships. Maybe you feel like an outcast. Maybe you felt like an outcast before and you think, well, surely God cannot, will not use people like that. Surely God doesn't really use people who are so messed up. I think that's the point. We're meant to wrestle with that. We're meant to really answer the question of who are we trusting in for our past? His brothers, they violate the Israelite laws of inheritance. They violate the commandments of of care and compassion. They don't love their neighbor, much less their brother. And then you see in verse verse 3 that he he flees his brothers. He's scared. Now, the reason why he would flee is because he's probably afraid they were going to try to keep him from receiving an inheritance by killing him. I mean, that's how you make sure nobody gets the inheritance, right? They're dead. And so he flees. He's, he's scared. And he goes and lives in the land of Tob, which is a good land. And it says worthless fellows collected around him. He, he gathered people who were worthless, who were thugs around him. He gathered people who had empty morals, is what that means. Worthless in the sense of they, they didn't have any, any value morally. And he gathers these worthless people around him, these worthless men and they collected around him, it says. And so, not only has he come from a bad past, a broken family, he's on the run, he's an outcast, but he's also got some issues. He draws the wrong kind of crowd because he's probably the wrong kind of guy. And he says, worthless fellows collected around him. He become this tough man. He was hardened probably from a bad home life, from... You know, both psychologically, physically, he had to bring himself up. He had to rely on himself. Couldn't rely on anybody else, apparently. Didn't trust people. He became savvy. But here's the thing. He's an unlikely choice for a deliverer. You know, how many of you, if you read that resume up till now, if you said he hung around worthless fellows, he collected them, and by the way, they followed him as he went out. And worthless fellows only follow people who continue to be worthless. So he goes out, and they follow him, and they collect around him. They go out with him. Now, the the inference there is they go out with him most likely to do bad things, to go raiding, to, to do worthless, morally empty things. And how many of you, if you read that resume, you know, imagine that you are hiring for the job of a deliverer for Israel, and you've got a list of qualifications. Well, he needs to be upright character, he needs to be stable, he needs to be strong but yet humble, winsome and yet kind, you know, what, what kind of things would you put on the resume for a deliverer? What kind, of, what kind of things would you put on the resume for somebody to rescue the people of Israel? What kind of things would you put on the resume for somebody to rescue you? What kind of deliverer would you look for, would you want, would you expect? He, he was an unexpected deliverer. He didn't meet the qualifications for the job, at least not in man's eyes. He was unworthy, unacceptable, an outcast, a thug. But here's the thing, God, God had been preparing Jephthah all along. God was actually using Jephthah's bad treatment to make him strong. He, he was using his, his bad treatment to make him smart, to make him wise, to know how to lead people, to, to be able to accomplish things. He was using even all the bad things that he did actually to enable him to know how to fight. He was a valiant, mighty warrior. God was at work even through all the bad stuff that happened in Jephthah's life to prepare him just for this moment. And, and, and all of those bad things even that Jephthah did that had been done to him, they didn't disqualify him in God's eyes. Because, you see, God using us does not depend upon us. God using people doesn't depend on their qualifications. doesn't depend on their past. 
doesn't depend on what's been done to them. It doesn't depend on what they've done. You ever feel like, though, that, that your past disqualifies you? Anybody here ever feel like your past disqualifies you? Or, or maybe you know better because you think, well, Jesus saved me from my past, and so he's redeemed my past, but now I screw up in the future. I screw up currently, and so um, all the things I do, that, that disqualifies me as well. All the things I've done since I became a Christian, that really disqualifies me. I'm not really worthy. God couldn't really use me. Why would he choose me? He can't really redeem those things. Now, you might not ever admit that, but sometimes if you're honest, you have to admit that we feel that way. That's how we function. And you ever have those moments where you ebb and flow in your faith? You ever, you ever ebb and flow in your levels of faith of, yes, God's at work. I messed up. God's not at work. You ever feel that way? Or, or yes, God's at work, but then I'm reminded of my past. And no, there's no way he can redeem me for that. Does he, does he know, really know all the bad things I've done? Where if people found out all the bad things I've done and who I really was, will they ever accept me? Will I ever be usable at all? Jephthah teaches us to answer that question, to confront that question of who are we trusting in for our past? You know, often it's, it's, it's easy when we come to the Lord and we, we think we're trusting him until we really realize just, just how awful we are. But the first thing as Christians that we need to do is to confront that issue of our past. Will we trust in God to redeem our past no matter what has happened to us, no matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us? God can redeem those things. God can still use us. Our past doesn't disqualify us. God qualifies us, not our past. You know, I, I, right now, personality tests are really popular. I guess they've been popular for about at least 30 years or so, you know, ever since like the Myers-Briggs, and then they've come out with all different types of tests since then, the DISC test for, for leaders, and, and right now in the last five years or so, it's been the Enneagram, and that's really popular for people too. And I think part of the reason why they're popular is because we like the pigeonhole folks. We like to pigeonhole the people. We like to figure out and put people in neat little boxes. And we even like to figure ourselves out and think, well, maybe if I understand myself, then, then you know, I'll figure out my, my weaknesses, my limitations. But sometimes they're used actually to confine us and make excuses for us in our past and who we are. But do you ever notice that there's no personality test in the Bible? I'm not saying it's wrong to take a personality test, but God doesn't deal with people that way. He knows each and every one of us individually. He doesn't make us fit into boxes. Sometimes observations in those tests might be true, but don't use those to evaluate other people and confine them to who they have been. Don't use those things to confine yourself to who you have been. If they reveal limitations, great. They can reveal areas where God can conform you into the image of Christ and not make you limited to those things. God uses all types, all backgrounds. He redeems and works through all kinds of things, all kinds of people. If it was up to us, we would not actually write any of us into the picture. There was a story that David Jackman shared about how Jim Graham, he quoted from a memorandum at a 1989 Keswick Convention in England. And he quotes from this memorandum and he says, to Jesus, the son of Joseph, Woodcrafter's shop, Nazareth, from the Jordan Management Consultants, Jerusalem, subject to staff aptitude evaluation. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have taken our battery of tests, and we not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. Bless him. It's the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, 
vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They don't have the team concept. We recommend you continue your search for positions, persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter, he's emotionally unstable and given a fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above the company. Loyalty. Thomas demonstrates the questioning attitude tend to undermine morale. We feel it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, his contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, innovative. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you success in your new venture. You ever limit God by how we view others? You ever try to limit God by when it comes to how we view ourselves? Thinking through your background. What do you feel like God can't redeem? How do you view your past? God always uses irregulars throughout history. The disciples were unlike Laban and so were we. So was Jephthah. Don't discourage those who are nobodies. God can use anybody, including those with questionable backgrounds, who are outcast. He also uses our mistreatment and turns around our past. So don't write yourself out of the script. God doesn't. He writes the script. Make yourself available. And the responsibility question we have, so we have God's sovereignty, right? And then we have human responsibility. How are we going to respond to God for our past? And so we see that in Jephthah too. He, how, how can he respond? Is it when they come to him, or is he going to say, well, no, you, you mistreated me. I'm going to stay there. I'm going to dwell in my past. No, I'm not acceptable. You hate me. That's who I am. That defines me. No, we don't see that's what he does. He obviously has a reputation when they come to him. And they're desperate. And he says, well, why, why are you coming to me? You hate me. And they say, well, be our leader. Then he agrees to that. He doesn't let his past define who he is. He has a responsibility. He, you can, you, and we have a responsibility too. We can either be stuck in our past and how we've been treated, we can move on in faith. And he responds, he moves on. The elders admit, yeah, we, we just want you to lead us. He's a good negotiator. He says, I'll do it if the Lord gives them over to me. And he moves on in faith in God. How he's able to move on from his past is to put his hope in the Lord for the future. We see this son of a harlot who hangs out with bad dudes, he's depending on the Lord. He's not stuck in his past. And so in response, they invoke the Lord as a witness between them. They enact a covenant with him. They go and they make him their head at the command of the army. Look at verse 11. It says, he spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. To some degree, at least, he trusted in God to redeem his past. Are you trusting in God to redeem your past? Are you moving forward in the future? Are you letting your past define you? And it's fine to learn about your past if you can not be stuck there and say, you know, how do I deal with those things in the past so I can move forward with the future, though? Not so I can let the past define me. And then he immediately moves into action in the present, which kind of draws us to the next question is, who are we trusting in for our present? Who are we trusting in for our present? Not, 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 not who we're trusting in for our past only, because we have to trust in God for our past in order to move on, but then now who are we trusting in for the present? Jephthah didn't let his past hinder him in the present, and he puts his skills to work in the present and gets to work right away. Look at verse 12. He immediately sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he takes up the reins of responsibility. He doesn't waste any time. He sends this diplomatic message, and the king, he doesn't respond well. He says, give us the land that's ours. And, and Jephthah, though, he's not dumb. He knows his history, and he says, no, actually, that land's not yours at all. It never has been yours. 
So he's trusting in God, he's confident in God, he's not shaken by the enemy. Because he's looking to God, he's trusting in God, he's trusting in what God has done in order to secure him for the present. And so we see that Jephthah actually looks back. He launches into a history lesson to set the king of the Ammonites, of the Ammonites straight. And, and, and it's clear, he's not just a warrior, he knows his Bible. Look at, look at verses, oh gee, all the way down through verse 20, <clears throat> verse 20, 14, 20. He's telling a history of the people of Israel. Jephthah's not a dumb thug. He's a smart guy, actually. He, he knows the Bible. He knows biblical history. And, and because of his knowledge of, of biblical history, knowledge of the, God's past work, it actually secures his faith in the future, in the present. And, and that's how we're actually meant to look back, too. We're meant to look and read the Bible, read God's previous work in redemptive history and see that if God has been at work in redemptive history, he's going to be at work in our lives today. That's what we're given the entire Old Testament, to see that God has been so faithful time after time after time. God's been merciful, he's been faithful, he's been at work all throughout history. And that means that he's going to be at work in our lives today. He's never left his people alone, ever. He's not leaving you alone. And so Jephthah, he reflects on God's redemption and his works of the past. It informs how he deals with the present. We're meant to do that. We need to do that. We need to reflect on the past so it can inform our present. Reflect on God's past, on how God has redeemed his people, how God has always had a plan that since the beginning of creation, he wasn't surprised by Adam's fall. He had already planned for it. And then we see that time after time, God has always been at work. He's never left people alone. He's always come after his people. He's always chosen a people, stuck stuck with them no matter what they've done. And God has proved himself not only faithful, but powerful, all-knowing, almighty, all-loving. We can trust him. That past work of, of God is meant to give us faith in his work in the present and his ability to do what he's promised. And so Jephthah, he gives a theological argument as well. He says, not only is Historically, God been at work. And that land was never yours to begin with, by the way. Did you notice he never mentions the land of Ammon here because it was never theirs? The, the king of the Ammonites was lying. So Jephthah gives a history argument, gives an argument from theology, says if, if the land was supposed to be yours, then, then surely the God you trust him would give it to you, right? He says, but no, God has actually dispossessed you and God has given us this land. He makes a theological argument, then makes an argument from precedent. We've had it for 300 years, too, by the way. So, like, where, what have you been doing for the last 300 years? Why didn't you go and try to take it before then? And then he tells him something. He says, the Lord is the one who gave the land into the hands of Israel. In verse 23, he, he credits the Lord, the God of Israel, with dispossessing the Ammonites. He says that if the Lord had dispossessed the people, then who are you to try to take possession now? God is the one who gives us our possession. He is the one who gives us the land. He is the one who brings us into the promised land. And we can trust in him that, that we are in his promised land, spiritually at least, right now. Because he's given it as a possession. He says, I, I've been sent against you. You're doing wrong by making war on me. And then he calls on the name of the Lord. He's relying on the name of the Lord to judge in the present. And we can rely on God to judge as well in the present. He's, he's not only the true king of the nations. He's the true, I mean, not just the true king of Israel. He's the true king of the nations. 
And this is the first and the only time in the book that anyone refers to someone else as the judge. It's the only time in the entire book of Judges someone is called the judge, and it's God. He's the judge. Do you realize that? You can trust in God for the present because he is the judge. He's the one in charge. He's the one in control. We can rest in him. We can trust in him for the present because he's the judge. And so he publicly appeals to the Lord to decide between their nations. His previous knowledge of God's activity, his, his current knowledge of God as the judge, it gives him the ability to trust, to have faith in God to decide between their nations. And I think that's why, for that portion of Scripture, is why Jephthah is actually mentioned in the Heroes of the Faith in Hebrews 11. But his words fall on deaf ears. He knows that God's the true judge. God's truly in control. He has faith. But the king of the Ammonites didn't know that. Question for us, our responsibility question, what's our responsibility when we see that, that God is sovereign over our present as well? What's our responsibility? Well, the question is, how will we respond to God in our present? How will we interpret what we're currently going through? How will we interpret the current enemy we face, the difficulties, the challenges we face? How, what will we bring to bear on our situation? Will we respond by looking to God's past and applying it to the present, looking to the fact that he's in control, he's the judge, and applying that to our present? Will we entrust ourselves for, to him? Knowing these things is meant to give us faith, no matter what the outcome might be, knowing what our outcome will be. With Ammonite king, he doesn't listen. Jephthah calls on Yahweh to decide. Empowered by the Spirit, Jephthah gets on the move. But then we see something happens here. We see that Jephthah falters in his responsibility. He falters. Verse 30, he just makes this horrific vow that he's going to sacrifice whatever comes out of his house to meet him. He's going to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, what was he doing? He, he failed in a couple ways. We see not only he failed in the present, but he fails in the future too. But he failed to trust that his present didn't depend upon him, but it depends upon God. His present doesn't depend on his ability to manipulate God, to confess good enough, to do things enough, to make vows that would get God in our favor. Do you ever feel like you need to do that? Like, God, if you just do this thing for me, then I will do this thing now. God, if you will only do this, then I'll trust in you. And so he was trying to manipulate God because that's what people do. We try to manipulate God and act as if if we behave a certain way, then God will behave a certain way to us. And we forget that, that God doesn't meet us based on our behavior. He doesn't choose us based on those things. He chooses us based, really, if you're a Christian, on the behavior of Christ. And that's our confidence. And it's not up to us to manipulate things, to try to make God happy with us. And sometimes we doubt that God can really truly be happy with us, that God will truly be at work because we see just, like, maybe we need to do something to make him favorable towards us. And we see that Jephthah makes this horrible, faithless vow. And it's costly and it's risky. And not only to reveal who he's trusting in for his present, he revealed something about who he's trusting in for his future. You know, and, and so this passage confronts who we are trusting in for our future. Sometimes when you become a Christian, you think, okay, thank you, God, you've forgiven all my sins in the past, and and Lord, I, I know I'm trusting you for sins that I do day by day that you'll forgive me. I'm trusting in you for my daily walk. But then we somehow subtly fall in this trap of thinking that it's our holiness, it's our purity, it's our abilities that keep us and that will keep us in the future. And so sometimes we think we're disqualifying ourselves because 
if, if we can't continue to respond to God, then, then maybe our future is insecure as if our future depends upon us to begin with. You ever, you ever do that? You ever at least relate to God that way? Trying to manipulate God, trying to act as if your future depends on your current response to God? You know, the beauty of Christianity is that our, our past is covered by Christ, redeemed by God, no matter what our past has been. We don't have to spend a lot of time dwelling on the past, by the way, because God, God redeems that. God uses that. He works sovereignly through that. And then in our present, we, we can trust that God is working, and he's with us. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. And then we can also know that, that our future in Christ does not depend upon us, but it depends upon Christ. And he's already been faithful and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so our future is secure. The question is, who are we trusting him for our future? And Jephthah here, he not only stumbles, he falls badly. He doesn't trust in God for the future. His daughter comes out. We know the rest of the story. It's shocking how she responds in complete submission and agreement and humility. Can't imagine the humility and the trust in the Lord that must have taken for her. And she goes and she weeps along with her friends for her need, and she comes back. And it says in verse 39, he did with her according to his vow that he had made. Now, we're not exactly sure, but it sure appears because he's saying, I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. It sure appears that he sacrificed his own daughter as a burnt offering. The only other alternative is that perhaps, maybe, maybe he relegated her to perpetual virginity because three times it mentions that in the passage. But either way, what he did was wrong. Scripture's not condoning this. It's, it's, it's putting the unvarnished truth out there to say, look, look at what happens when you do not trust in God when you look to yourself. Look at what happens when you are self-seeking. And here's the thing. Jephthah says, there's no way I can go back on my vow. Why? Because he was worried about how it would affect him. Maybe it would affect his reputation. Maybe he was worried about God smiting him or God killing him. So what? If he really loved his daughter, he'd be like, you know what? That was a bad vow. God, kill me now because I don't want to kill her. So it really revealed who he was trusting in to hold his future was himself. His future reputation, his life. He wasn't trusting God with his life. He wasn't trusting God with his reputation. He was trying to keep that himself. And he was willing to sacrifice his daughter for his future. Then we see it shifts to chapter 12, and I'll read chapter 12. Judges 12, 1 says, The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphron and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight the Ammonites and didn't call us to go with you? We'll burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you didn't save them from my hand. And when I saw you, that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand, and I crossed, oh, he took his own life in his hand, by the way, and crossed over the, against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. Then men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites. In the midst of Ephraim, Manasseh, the Gileadites captured the forge of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when they, any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And he said, No. They said to him, They say Shibboleth. And he said, Shibboleth, because he couldn't pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the forge of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 Ephraimites fell. What is going on? This isn't good. This is, this is his own countrymen he's slaughtering. 
Jephthah was, was more concerned to keep his future than he was to uphold God's covenant and how he treated the Ephraimites. The Ephraimites were more concerned for their own glory, their own reputation, than honoring God. They didn't trust God to keep their reputation in the future. They didn't trust in God. They took things in their own hands. It ends in disaster. A bunch of people just not, not looking to God, not trusting in God. It ends in disaster. But then we have verses 7 to 15. And, and I think there's a reason for that. Why, why is this 7 to 15 here at the end of the Jephthah account? Look at, look at 7 to 15. It says, Jephthah judged Israel six years. And then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. And Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. And he judged Israel ten years. And Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdom, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons and rode on 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. What's going on? <laughs> what? Why is that there, you're wondering? I think it's there to show that even the evil that, Jeff, that Jephthah did, all those things, God, God is still sovereign. We can trust him for the future. That There's a 31-year period at the end of the Jephthah account because God is actually the one who brings peace. It's not what we do on our own. It's not our strivings. It's not our struggles to keep things. It's not how much we work. It's God. God's the one who brings peace. He's the one who brings stability. We can trust in him. The question for us, our responsibility question is, how will we look to God for our future? How will we look to God for our future? Are we trusting in him, resting in him, looking to him? Because here, here's the big idea in this whole passage. We can trust in God for our past, our present, and our future. I think that's the point of chapters 11 and 12. We can trust in God for our past. We can trust in God for our present, for our future. It's not up to us to, to win God's favor. It's not up to us to manipulate God to keep his favor. It's not up to us to hold our future either. Jephthah, he kind of reminds us of, of Jesus who was despised and rejected by men. Jephthah was flawed and imperfect at best, but our future is secure because we don't rely on an imperfect deliverer. We rely on a perfect Savior. And, and where Jephthah failed and he made, he could have actually sacrificed himself instead of his daughter. But see, Jesus has done that. He, he sacrificed himself in our place. He didn't, he didn't make us pay to keep the vow. Jesus paid for us to keep the vow we could not keep. He sacrificed, God sacrificed his son and Jesus sacrifices himself willingly. Your past is redeemed, your present is secure and it has a purpose and your future has already been written because he's been raised again and he reigns on high. Because the future is already written, we can hope in him, trust in him and look to him. Amen? Let's close in song. Thanks. Let's pray. God, if you would be gracious to us, we just pray that you would just shine down upon us right now, Lord. We just pray that you would, you would open up our hearts and minds, that you would help us see where we are, have been stuck in the past, where we've been looking backwards and letting our past define us. Lord, would you help us see that our past does not define us, you define us. 
God, for those areas where we are trying to manipulate you or we lack faith for the present because of our sins or weaknesses or what's been done to us or what people are doing currently, Lord, the enemy we face, Lord, I pray that we would trust in you for our present. And God, I pray that we would not try to, to wrest control of the future from you, Lord, but we would know that you are in control, Lord. That we would trust in, in the future you've already written for all who put their trust and faith in you. For all who put their confidence in you, God, our future is already written. So, Lord, would you help us trust in that day by day, step by step? Lord, you've, you've always been faithful to us. And, Lord, because of your past faithfulness, we know you'll, you'll continue to be faithful to us, Lord. And we know that you always will be faithful. We pray that you would just burn these things into our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.